Hey guys, and welcome to episode 6 of Stir the Pot, a podcast all about food and the people that love it. On today's episode, we talk all about the Nordic idea of hugger, which very, very roughly translates into coziness, but more about that in the actual episode. Um, I'm joined by Norwegian-American food writer Signe Johansson, who is based in London, and we talk all about the idea and how it's risen to popularity in the UK and how it's also slightly misunderstood, and of course, the food that can be considered part of hugger. And trust me, after today, and I am recording this on the day that Donald Trump, yes, that Donald Trump has become president-elect of the United States, Hugger is something that we can all take comfort in. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Please, as always, I appreciate massively if you can leave a review on iTunes and tweet about the episodes. It really helps it get listened to by more people. And that means I can keep making episodes and getting guests to come on the podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Uh, so first of all, um, thank you for the waffles. Uh, so before we started, you got me some utterly delicious waffles, which is just what I needed today. Oh, thank you. So we're recording this on um, a fateful day, <laughs> on the day that Donald Trump has become president-elect. So I think, from my point of view anyway, sweetness was definitely needed today. I think we all needed the carbs. <laughs> I think carbs and sugar are definitely two things that we'll... Definitely be needing this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, as always, we're going to start the podcast with the same question, which is simply, how did food become such a big part of your life? Uh, I guess it all started with my grandparents on the west coast of Norway, who had a farm in a little village called Aurland. And uh, it's real Viking terrain. It's in a fjord. Um, very beautiful part of Norway. Um, I would say that, obviously, I'm Norwegian <laughs> biased. Of course. <laughs> but um, it truly is. There's a sort of spectacular, um, it's a kind of landscape that you see in films. You know, it's really striking fjords and mountains and um, incredible kind of almost mythical territory. Mm. And um, anyway, my grandparents had this farm. And so when I was little, we used to pick berries in the summer and do lots of baking with my grandmother. And we'd make bread and we'd make cinnamon buns and all kinds of delicious Scandinavian specialties <laughs> that have become increasingly um, popular abroad. Um, but I just grew up with good food and it wasn't a class thing. I, mm. didn't, have, I didn't come from a wealthy background or, um, you know, my, my, my parents and my grandparents just loved good food. And so I was really lucky because I think like anyone who's grown up with a, an exposure to the way that food is grown and to the countryside and to farming, um, and I sort of intuitively understood from a young age where food comes from and sure. how ingredients are grown and, you know, that a chicken breast comes from a chicken <laughs> and <laughs> um, really obvious things yeah. that are not necessarily always um, understood today, I think, by some, some younger um, I kids. think it's, it saddens me when, um, I remember very clearly when Jamie Oliver did his, one of his campaign TV shows and he went into a school and asked them things like, where do hamburgers come from? And people would say, you know, the supermarket or you yeah. know, from ham um, and I think you're right I think that connection to where your ingredients actually comes from is incredibly important I've always thought uh, around the idea of meeting, eating meat that you have to be very aware of where meat mm-hmm. comes from you can't detach yourself because then you maybe eat um, unconsciously and then you're not aware of you know 
cheap meat means that you're buying it from not necessarily a great source where the animals are treated very well. Yeah. So I think that connection is really important. Definitely. And I think even just making those decisions that, you know, I, I've been drinking organic milk most of my life and that was just something we did. It mm. wasn't because it was posh. It wasn't because it was more expensive. It was just sure. common sense. Yeah. And uh, I, I still, I think it's much better today than it used to be in the UK in terms of food culture and the kind of progress that's been made so that people accept that there are good reasons for investing in, in decent ingredients and, you know, food it with provenance. It definitely seems to be going that way where yeah. I, I think it's hard these days to uh, avoid that question of where food comes from. Yeah. Um, what was food like when you were back in Norway then when you were a kid? What sort of things? Were you cooking? from a young age as well as eating. Yeah, I was, uh, I think us grandkids always got roped in. <laughs> Very crafty grandparents um, used to put us to work at a young age. So we would help with picking the berries, we'd make jam. Um, my grandmother would get us to help make the buns, you know, shape them, kind of get yeah. our hands dirty. And I think, again, it's that idea of embodied learning, you know, actually learning by touch, by kind of understanding and seeing how things are made. That was really important from a young age that I didn't understand at the time. It's only with the wisdom of, you know, being older that I kind of appreciate it. But when I was a kid, it was just something you did. It was a, a way of yeah. staving off boredom more than anything and kind of spending time with granny. Um, but it was very hands-on and, um, and it wasn't kind of an obvious educational thing either. It was mm. just more like, oh, we're a family and this is how we spend time together, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was fun and it was practical. And I think it was probably for my grandparents just a relief to have a few <laughs> extra pairs of hands in, on the farm. <laughs> um, so it was, yeah, it was a mixture of things, but um, very, very practical, hands-on experience, I th I'd say. I think you describe... Um childhood in a similar way to the way that I do in that I always had baking since I was a very little kid and it never felt like a hobby or a chore mm -hmm. it was just part of the family life that yeah. we had and I think because of that baking feels very ingrained into me as a person yeah um and it definitely feels like that's something similar for you definitely I mean I I you know I love home-baked goods mm. that are made with real butter and real flour <laughs> and real eggs and <laughs> real sugar um and I do find it slightly frustrating in recent years that baking has been um, turned into this, like, there's a certain kind of health aspect of baking mm. that has gone really, <laughs> so I feel like it's sometimes we sort of jump the shark. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Baking is not meant to be healthy. It's not meant to be healthy. And I think, you know, a little bit of what's good or, or what, a little bit of what you fancy yeah. is good for you. And that was the philosophy that I grew up with. Yeah. But home-baked things were just delicious, um, but you didn't have them all the time. Mm. You know, you didn't have them every day. It was a treat maybe once a week at most. And, um, and because we were so active, it never felt like it was something that was indulgent. It was actually mm. like a necessity. You know, you, you had to kind of give yourself those little rewards. Like you go skiing for hours and hours <laughs> in winter. And of course you were going to have a cinnamon bun at the end of it. Yeah, because you need <laughs> the carbs literally fuel. <laughs> you literally need it when you've been cross-country skiing for five hours. <laughs> I think you said, uh, the thing you said about a little bit of what you fancy does you good has always been one of my overriding uh, principles, I think. It's, it's probably the best way to live for me because, um, you know, I bake probably more than most people do in their lifetimes. <laughs> but I still don't eat it all the time. And yeah. I think if you restrict yourself from eating something that you really enjoy, that feels like a punishment. Yeah. Whereas if you have a really balanced diet where you don't stop yourself from having something that you fancy, I think it just feels a better for you, but also you feel happier. And yeah. I think food is meant to be a happy thing. Exactly. Um, and actually, I think it reminds me of the... I was talking to Dory in a previous episode about... The way, the way the French eat, and that is, I'm only going to eat it if it's good. Mm -hmm. You know, so they may only have a small amount, but it is the best you can get. And I think that's a really nice uh, attitude to have, and I think it's the same sort of thing, really. Definitely, and that idea that quality matters, you know, and it's it's not about, you know, how moneyed you are. It's not about wealth. It's not about, you know, 
spending lots of money on expensive ingredients. Mm. It's just saying that quality actually matters and, and it should be accessible to everyone. You know, I have oh, a very completely. kind of Pollyanna-ish view of these things, but <laughs> I do think that good food can be accessible to everyone, yeah. but it requires a little bit of skill, a little bit of knowledge and some hands-on experience. And, you know, and, and also some forward planning. I think good cooking always yeah. takes a bit of thought and effort. And, you know, let's face it, lots of people feel that that's a chore. They feel, you know, it's, it's too much. They're time pressed. You know, mm. There's all these challenges in modern life. But actually, to my mind, it's it's the mundane things like cooking that are really satisfying because oh, completely. there's nothing better than producing a delicious loaf of bread or oh. a beautiful stew in the winter months or, yeah. you know, just It's really meditative to me almost. It, exactly. It's meditative. That's a good word for it. I, um, this morning when, um, I was kind of at a loss of what to do because of the result in the, in politics, my brain instantly takes me back to the kitchen because when I was first baking more and more, it was a way of relieving stress. It was a way of getting out of my head. And I think, especially with those big kitchen jobs where say like you're making a stock or a big stew or something like that, it's there's almost a level of mundaneness that allows mm-hmm. you to escape yeah. your own brain. Um, I do this thing where, um, I turn on the music and I kind of dance around the kitchen like a lunatic. Um, <laughs> Little kitchen disco. <laughs> of course, yeah. Because it kind of lets me get out of my own head. Yeah. And I think there's something really special about that f- small amount of time that you allow yourself every day to get in the kitchen and actually enjoy what you're doing and try and use it in that kind of, you know, we've all heard about mindfulness in the last few years. And <laughs> I think that's my way of doing that. Definitely. I mean, when I was growing up as, as a teenager, I found... Um, that was exactly what it was. It was a stress relief. Mm. You know, I, I started being much more actively engaged in cooking at home in my parents' kitchen because I really enjoyed the process of it, but it was also just a really good way of not thinking about exams and worrying about revision and worrying about cramming lots of facts and understanding things and, you know, beating everyone else in the essay that week in history. You know, there was there all kinds of challenges that you face as a teenager. Mm. And I think that if you can find some sort of... Um, tactic or some you know some some way of just escaping those challenges and kind of channeling all that nervous energy into something productive mm. what better place to do it than the kitchen well, completely um in your new book which we are going to talk about a little bit later um you have your rules i'm going to say this wrong <laughs> i'm going to say this now i'm probably going to butcher this word over and over again so i do apologize <laughs> um but you have the rules on how to hug her um, so yeah, I told you I was going to say it wrong. How do you pronounce it once and for all? Well, in Norwegian, it's higge. Higge. Um, it's from the so old wrong. Norse word higge, uh, which means to think or to be. And that's the clue in mm. the meaning of, of higge or higge. Um, the Danes have a slightly different pronunciation, which is huga. So okay, that was because I actually watched a video on how to pronounce the word, and it was a Danish. And I've slightly butchered the Danish. I'm very sorry to any Danes <laughs> listening right now. Uh, my Danish is terrible. Um, the weird thing about Norwegian and Danish is that they look identical on paper, but they sound very difficult. Uh, dif- huh. They sound very difficult. They are very difficult. <laughs> they sound very different um, when you read them out loud. The, the Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of curious. Um, but in there, you have your, um, near the end of the book, you have your rules on um, huga. Just gonna say it very quietly, so well you can't quite hear well me properly. Um, and a lot of those things relate back to to that about how to, you know, to actually have a little bit of time. And batch cooking was part of that to have your freezer kind of stocked, mm-hmm. um, and taking the time to actually learn a few dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're really important skills, especially to teach people when they're younger. Yeah. I think I remember back to my university days, and it's kind of when I started cooking more and more. And I think if I'd have gone to university knowing a few key dishes and how to kind of look after myself a little bit more it would have made that side of things at university a lot easier 
Um, and I think they're very simple but very useful kind of rules. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're life skills. You mm. know, that's, a, that's a slightly overused word, but I think that idea of understanding how to do a few things in our hectic modern age in which, you know, in theory, you can get everything bought in or made yeah. for you conveniently. Our, you know, our lives are set up, especially if we live in big cities, that we can pretty much fetch anything online or step out our front door and buy it ready-made. Yeah. And to my mind, that's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful fallback to have. You know, Completely. the idea of like, okay, I'm tired. I've just you know had a long day and I'm just going to make some compromises. And okay, a ready meal, might that, that might be the compromise that you make that particular day. But to kind of, to sort of sign away all of your agency to other people, to my mind, um, I know that sounds kind of pompous, but that idea of like, <laughs> I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that idea of outsourcing, what is essentially quite a simple skill to, to, yeah. to big companies, um, to other people, it just seems bonkers to me. It's like, no, I can make this myself, you know, and when I go out and spend money on, money on restaurants or go to, you know, if I do buy some convenience food, I make sure it's something that maybe I don't make myself on sure. a regular basis. So I feel like at least I'm spending my, my money on something that isn't what I'm going to make at home. Yeah. Um, and that in that sense, it feels like a little bit of a treat or an indulgence, or at least I can justify it in that way. But actually, I think it's just really important, you know, to be able to to be able to feed yourself. Mm. I mean, for most of human history, um, life was pretty tough. You know, we <laughs> lived in caves or we were kind of struggling out on the savanna um, in the desert or we were, you know, chased by wild animals. And so food was a scarce resource. You know, it was something that you, you didn't, it was feast or famine. You know, mm. you sometimes had plentiful amounts and other times you had hardly anything. And you know, you can go into all kinds of interesting anthropological um, depth about that and the way that humans have evolved. But I do think that the, in the age that we live in, food has become so abundant and so ubiquitous and we can have everything at our fingertips if we choose to. Um, it's almost too much. It's almost overwhelming, actually. You know, and, and to be able to step back and say, no, I choose to make a few things by myself and you know, spend a little bit of time and effort using good ingredients. That's, To my mind, that's quite empowering. Completely. And I think um, one of the things that struck me when I read the book um, or oh, one of the things that I kept thinking this to me is almost it's my version of Hugger is um, was making bread mm -hmm. and I think we'll talk about what, what Hugger actually means in a little bit but it seemed to fit perfectly into that sphere and it gives you that feel of satisfaction of making something with your own hands but also is there to, to feed you and to sustain you exactly to jump a little bit ahead so you came to London to study, I think you said in 99. Uh, yeah, I came to the UK to study in 99. So that was uh, that's like so, half of my life spent here. <laughs> so what, what made the, what, what desired you to, um, to make the jump across to the UK to study? Just... Um, I wanted to go to university here because I felt like there was, there were more opportunities in the UK. Um, I'm a quarter British, so it felt like it was an obvious next step, you know, to leave Norway. I'd been through an international schooling system, and uh, as an 18-year-old, I wanted to be a diplomat, <laughs> which uh, didn't really pan out. <laughs> but I like to think of myself as a soft diplomat, <laughs> doing my bit for Nordic culture um, internationally. But um, no, I, I, I spoke a lot of languages, and I come from a background of many nationalities. Um, so I just felt like, you know, in that very naive 18 year old way, I, I sort of, I wanted, I was a citizen of the world, <laughs> one of the much maligned citizens of the world. Um, and, uh, and I really wanted to explore everything that Britain had to offer. I think it's got a brilliant education system that, you know, it's, it's very cult culturally diverse. Um, I was just fascinated by it and I still am. I think, you know, this has become my home mm. and, um, 
Yeah, this is a very diverse, interesting island to be living in and has been for, for a long time. So, you know, uh, yeah, one of those happy migrants who ended up here. <laughs> to be fair, I think migrants are what makes, especially, uh, I mean, I've lived in London now for six years and I remember during the whole uh, Brexit campaign, people were saying, you know, I get on the bus and I don't hear English. And I love the fact that I get on the bus and I hear six languages yeah. and that the food in the city is from, you know, every corner of the earth. And that London, to me, is a welcoming city to, to people from all over, is one of the best things about living here. Exactly. Um, and so I'm definitely happy that we have happy migrants <laughs> over here. Well, of course, Britain has also historically been very receptive to immigration. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is a country of, of immigrants. I mean, look at the Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> okay, in fairness. Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> not sure that was immigration. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was a slightly more violent form of immigration. Mm. But yeah. <laughs> But um, if you look at English as a language, of course, it's, you, yeah. it, that's, that is the history of migration right there. It's so full of foreign words mm. um, and influences. That, and of course, as you say, London is such a diverse city. And it's, it's I mean, you can argue this back and forth, and I, I don't want to make this about politics, but I do think that diversity is what makes us stronger. You know, if you look at an ecosystem, for example, um, you need diversity. You know, if we're all homogenous, if everything's the same, that's when you, that's when trouble. Yeah, that's when we die out. Yeah. (laughs) Literally to keep the the pack strong, you have to breed outside of it. Exactly. You've touched on it a little bit with anthropology and as well as, as well as studying food and cooking at Leith School of Food and Wine, you also went to SOAS to do the anthropology of food. uh, the podcast has always, for me, been about the connection between people and food. But what is it about that that drives you? Because I think most people in food are driven by the fact they just love food. Mm-hmm. But you seem to have a much more uh, connection to culture and to people. And I think that's a really interesting approach to food that isn't always the, the norm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think that um, the great thing about anthropology, of course, is that it's well, it's the study of people and societies. Mm. And so under that rubric, well, you could study anything. <laughs> um, and the beauty of food anthropology in particular in the, in the Food Studies Center at SOAS is that it really explored a lot of really diverse themes um, in great depth. So you look at things like food security. Um, you look at, the, obviously, the history of food, um, health, you know, uh, the medical aspects of it. I mean, everything you can think of with food, food politics, um, international development, you know, there's the, you know, food touches all of our lives. Mm. And I think one of the slightly frustrating things I find in the media of the last few years is that although food has become very fashionable, it's all about recipes. And to my mind, recipes only tell one story. Yeah. Um, and I think actually great food writing and, and food anthropology and the culture and history of food those are subjects that could be explored in greater depth and I think there's an appetite for it and it's kind of a shame that the mainstream media, you know, <laughs> sounding like some sort of, you know, oh God, I realize as soon as I say this that I'm falling into a trap. It's rigged. It's, it's rigged. rigged. It's, it's all rigged. It's all rigged. It's all, yeah, this whole, this whole podcast is rigged. Um, <laughs> then, um, but the mainstream media really, um, again, I think because it's so easy to source great content you know we've got brilliant chefs and Mm. food writers and cooks in the uk and you know again a real diverse range you know from Mm. every culture every background um from different restaurants you know from cookery schools all over the place and so there's lots of really interesting people doing interesting things in the food industry in this country but um i think the kind of relentless focus on recipes is just kind of it's a bit banal yeah and and i just i got very bored very quickly with it and although i like I like the logic of a recipe and I, lo- I love the creative exercise of recipe testing and coming mm. up with new dishes and 
you know, that side of it is very stimulating. But actually writing recipes over and over again, I find really quite tedious. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's not a slur on anyone who, who's written thousands of cookery recipes at all. I think it's just the way that your mind works and, and your temperament. Um, and in my particular temperament, uh, I happen to be more interested in the wider context of food and where we come from and the stories that you can tell. I think also people, you know, I, I grew up in uh, a society, obviously, that was very homogenous. Nor- Norway is not known for um, being ethnically that diverse. <laughs> but I went to an international school and, of course, having parents from different backgrounds, I learned from a young age that you actually break down barriers with people when you sit down and have a meal with them. And I think that's really important, Mm. um, especially in the age that we live in. But I think just throughout human history, you know, people have sat down and broken bread together. And that's the way that we bond with other people. It's it's a very important aspect of our development and our cultures and our societies. And um, and it just doesn't it doesn't seem to really I don't know. It's really interesting. It just hasn't really captured the imagination of um, people beyond a very niche mm. anthropology <laughs> set of uh, you know nerds like me. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's interesting because I remember having a conversation with um, David Leibovitz, who is obviously a really um, popular uh, cookbook writer, mm-hmm. and his most recent book was about his kitchen and his life in Paris. And I remember him saying that he couldn't just write a cookbook these days. Um, and he came at, came at it from a slightly different point of view because he was saying that there's no value, well, not that there's no value, but why would anybody buy a cookbook when they can find recipes for anything online? So a cookbook needs to provide a narrative, a story. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can give a cookbook a deeper meaning, I think it's, it's something really nice because you can actually read it like a book. Exactly. I've been one of those weird people that does already read cookbooks like a book, but to give it an added narrative means most people or everybody will happily read as a book and it gives you a more understanding of where that recipe comes from. Exactly. Um, I think, you know, everybody knows what Victoria Sponge is, but I'm not (laughs) sure everybody knows where that comes from. Yeah. Or with any dish, you know, dishes always have a story and I think that's something that's always fascinated me. and I think weaving that into um, a cookbook format or other book formats mm-hmm. is is fascinating. And I do think you're right, though. I think that's missing from food media. You know, I think people have have tried, but whether it's there's not an appetite there in the public mm. or not, that's debatable. Yeah. But you definitely don't see it as much. Mag- magazines tend to be a hundred recipes. You know, yeah. they are mini cookbooks. Yeah. And. I think it's a shame. I think if you can give more story, I think it's fascinating. Definitely. I think also there's, I mean, there's the added problem that for a lot of um, publications in the last, well, as the last decade, I guess, that, you know, advertising revenues down, budgets have been dramatically shrunk. Um, there aren't as many journalists anymore and editors. And so I think they're just desperate for content. Yeah. And what, as we know, having worked in the industry for a while, that it's... Um, Publishers love to give content when they look out, and, and understandably so. You've got a product yeah. to sell. That's you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not I'm not chastising them for that. But um, I think what's happened is that food media and a lot of mainstream publications, they know that they can access content quite easily, yeah. and uh, and in that sense, it becomes quite lazy. And mm-hmm. it's you know, it's easy. We all want to make our lives easier. I get that. I totally get <laughs> it. Um, but I just wish that there. And I think that's what's interesting is that you've got some of these newer independent magazines oh, popping up and a lot of interesting content online. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some fascinating websites like Roads and Kingdoms that track, you know, entire stories and narratives of, mm. of other parts of the world. And, you know, sometimes it's about food and sometimes not. And it's, 
I just think that again, it's, it's the stories that we tell, um, and we are, you know, as we as, as by the fact, evinced by the fact that there are podcasts about all <laughs> kinds of things in this world. People love stories, yeah. you know, and we love listening to the radio. We still listen to the radio, you know, in an age in a hyper visual age. We still like to listen mm. to stories being told, and we like to listen to people. And you know, I like to think that in the in in the long run, um, stories will win, you know, and, and maybe we'll. Maybe the good fight is being fought. I don't know, who knows? But um, you've got to start somewhere, right? Completely. Just and I, th- I think f- uh, food, especially, but life in general, would be incredibly dull if we didn't have the stories that connect yeah. us to our past and to our future. Exactly. Um, talking of story and, and, and more narrative kind of based books, uh, your new book is How to... Um, <laughs> I'm going to just murder it again. How to hook up. said that as I'm laughing so you can't hear. Um <laughs> But Hugger is, is a concept that seems to have become incredibly popular this year. I was saying to you before we started that I went into a bookshop today, a big London bookshop, and um, I was trying to find your book. And I went to the cookbook section where I kind of assumed it would be based on what you'd previously written. And I couldn't find any Hugger books there. So I went to the desk and they took me to the Hugger section <laughs> where it, I don't think I've ever seen the concept become so... Uh, populist almost mm-hmm. overnight now I have seen you put on Twitter about your um, not disdain but your frustration maybe of how that has been described as a concept so we're going to give you a platform okay. to set this record straight <laughs> what, what does uh, Hugga mean to you? Well first of all it's completely fascinating to me that Hugga has become mm. such a big thing I mean I, it's taken me by surprise to be honest I thought it would be very niche and sure. maybe a couple of books written about it this year maybe next but it does feel like we live in a very uncertain age, and I wonder if there is a reaction, a very direct reaction to the uncertainties and anxieties of modern living, and particularly in, the, in recent years. Um, but maybe also that's been gathering for longer than we realize, you know, maybe not just since 2008 with the recession and austerity, but maybe even further back. So I do feel like this is a culmination of years and years of um, hyperactive modern life that people are actually questioning, like, what is, what is important in life? And so it, this, I mean, there's a number of factors involved here. So there's, you know, some people argue that Higa is fashionable at the moment because, um, because of the sort of, it's the logical conclusion, or it's logical um, inheritor to mindfulness, which is, <laughs> which was very fashionable about a year or two yeah. ago. And the, I think the problem is that once something becomes a lifestyle trend and it becomes about selling things, that it become, it can be <laughs> really dumbed down and. Yeah. Uh, and used in a way that is intensely irritating um, <laughs> to to those of us who maybe grew up in a part of the world where lifestyle fads and trends and concepts are not as rigorously sold. Sure. Um, so I've seen all kinds of crazy things about Higa in recent months, and I, I'm not going to rant and rave <laughs> too much here. But so I mean, if you want to understand the basics, um, the word itself, as I mentioned before, it comes from Old Norse. And in fact, if you go to the west coast of Norway, where my parents, my grandparents are from, uh, where I mentioned the farm earlier. Um, they still say higya. It's the old pronunciation, so mm. quite a f- forceful yeah. pronunciation. Like you don't just higya; it's like higya. <laughs> and uh, which, considering <laughs> which, you know, coziness is one of the words associated with it, is not the, the way you'd think it would be pronounced. Yeah, they're pretty fearsome people. Like I mentioned, <laughs> there is some definitely Viking territory there. And um, you know, one one of the examples. Um, so yes, the modern interpretation of higya which has been heavily promoted mostly by Denmark, um, is, is that it's this cozy, um, really like safe, warm feeling and, and most readily embodied by, or I suppose um, visually 
um, the image that people have in their minds is, you know, uh, cozy slippers, a fireplace, some candles, cake, hot chocolate. And believe me, Ed, I mean, you know me, I love all those things. <laughs> in fact, I am a avid proponent of all those things. I think you offered me two of those things when I was in the door. I was offered hot chocolate and waffles. Yeah, and we do have uh, a candle um, lit in this room right now. But... Um, it's, it, that's really reductive, and the thing is, it doesn't make any sense unless you understand how Nordic people live mm. and how we've developed. Again, it's going back to this idea of anthropology, and I'm not going to sound like a worthy academic <laughs> banging on about anthropology today, but I do think it's important to understand the context of where it comes from. And what people often forget is that the Nordic region was very poor until very recently. So it was a part of the world that did not have um, a lot of money, and it didn't have a lot of access to resources. and anything really it was generally quite poor and Norway in particular was dirt poor it was considered one of the poorest countries in Europe until the 70s when lo and behold we found oil <laughs> and um, and in 40 years time well the country's gone through extraordinary change um, it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world now and but the interesting thing about Scandinavia and the Nordic region is that by every measure of quality of living, all the countries do exceptionally well. I mm. mean, they really punch above their weight when it comes to the soft power of um, gender equality <laughs> and <laughs> um, women's rights and pu public health, education, um, you know, having quite stable democracies. Um, we're not perfect, obviously, mm. I'm not suggesting that at all. But generally, the Nordic countries have kind of got it right. We invest in boring things like infrastructure. Yeah. And... Um, Yes, there are political arguments. You know, it's uh, it's not just social democratic haven. Um, but there's, it just feels like the big questions in life beyond material well-being have all been answered mm. um, more or less with great success. And and so I've just been curious over the last decade, like why is that? You know, what is it about the region that that allows for this to happen? And some people have posited, oh, it's because it's so ethnically homogenous, and so you have these sort of very consensus-driven politics and um, you know, of course, everything is happy, clappy. It's so cold and miserable. <laughs> and like, there's all kinds of strange theories. Sure. Um, and I and I would contest this idea that we're you know really happy people. We're not. I mean, trust me. <laughs> I can, you know, there's, there's a reason why I left Norway. I love it. But um, I you know, but I think that the thing is, people are very content with their lot. Sure. And that's important to consider when you understand Hygge, or if you want to understand Hygge, that it doesn't really make any sense unless you look at the way people live. Now, the other thing, of course, is health. That's a big question because I'm certainly no proponent of this idea that we should just be gorging ourselves mm. and surrendering to winter and you know hibernating. Like We're pretty tough people. We're pretty resilient. And part of that is being very active, yeah. very outdoorsy, very sporty. And that's for both men and women. That's, I mean, that I grew up in a culture in which women have thighs, and we, you know, we need those thighs for doing mm -hmm. things like running and yeah. hiking and skiing and shoveling snow and doing all kinds of, you know, forceful manual things when it's winter outside. <laughs> um, so this it's really fascinating. There's so many different aspects to this, but I think the main thing to remember is that. Higa is not a retreat. It's not a surrender. It's not something that is fluffy, cutesy, feminine either. You know, men and women can enjoy Higa as much as anyone else. You yeah. know, this is a gender-neutral thing. And uh, to have a higgly time, because of course Higa is the noun, <laughs> and higgly is what you would actually say. You didn't. You would never go to someone in in Norway or or Denmark and say, "Shall we Higa?" Yeah. Um, and and so it's slightly peculiar when I see people mentioning it's like, <laughs> "I'm having such a higgly time." I'm like, oh, "Okay, well, okay." They haven't understood that it's actually a noun, not a verb, yeah. um, or an adjective for that matter. 
but um it's it you would like for example it's like really small gestures so when i so when i for example suggested that we have waffles mm. today that is a classic example of again it's that sort of openness and welcoming people in it's mm. like saying here's a cup of coffee well in your case a cup of tea <laughs> and here's some waffles yeah. and literally my norwegian grandmother who i mentioned before she would have a batch of waffle um, batter on the go pretty much most times just in case someone turned up yeah most days because you know in case someone would show up or she'd have some sort of little biscuit or cake in the tin ready for impromptu visits and I think that's again that's that idea of community sort of old-fashioned values of yeah. like communities um, where you stop in and check on your neighbors or you know you just say hello to a long-lost friend or cousin or whatever yeah. and, and it I, I don't have all the answers to why that is. Um, I find it fascinating because I think living in a city like London, the idea of stopping in on your yeah. neighbor and having an impromptu get together is unheard of. so unheard of mm. and so alien. And I, I try, I'm really lucky where I live here in, in Bloomsbury that actually there is a bit of a community feel. So for example, our neighbor's Persephone bookshop um, next door I'll pop in and, you know, we'll have a little chat and sometimes I bring them cake and, nice. you know, and they take my post. <laughs> so, that, you know, and again, my, my nearest neighbor downstairs as well. Like we have we have good neighborly relations. Yeah. So just th- simple things like that that I think have almost been forgotten in the modern age. You know, they're sort of they're not considered important anymore. Yeah. Like there's no value to them. But actually, I think there is value to them. I think there's complete value to them. I think uh, one of the things I read in the book that kind of struck a chord was um, how you you mentioned the link of kind of people kind of uh, see it as part of mindfulness but mindfulness is all about looking inward but hugging is all about looking outwards mm-hmm. and uh, to me reading through the book and seeing all kind of you know all the mountains of press articles about this new trend that's you know stri- uh, striking through the, the country is that it all it definitely feels about it, it's being with other people mm-hmm. and it's enjoying other people's company yeah as well as kind of almost that same sense that I love in kind of fika mm-hmm. is that it is about taking moments yeah. and you know especially in a city like London where you know it's very easy to get incredibly stressed and busy and run down by the city to take those times to actually relax and enjoy yourself and actually treat yourself the way you need to be to actually be a you know relaxed workable human being yeah I think that's the thing it's the restorative power mm. of those little moments and fika is a very good example of that actually um I mean, at the university, I think it's at University of Uppsala in Sweden, they did research on the restorative power of, yes. of fika, yeah. you know, and actually showed that companies that practice fika um, on a daily basis have much happier employees, you know, they, because you treat, I think when you treat human beings with dignity and respect yeah. and treat, you know, again, it's, it's almost going back to the sort of old fashioned religious values that I'm, I, you know, I'm agnostic, I'm not a religious person necessarily, but that idea of treat unto others as you would be treated unto yourself or whatever the yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's right <laughs> I slightly mangled it but um, <laughs> but this idea that you know reciprocal kindness and, reci- yeah. and and moments of restoration and doing things that are kind to yourself and to others um that you know they I, I feel so pollyanna saying this it's, it sounds so hopelessly <laughs> idealistic in the age that we live in it's you know because we mired in cynicism but um I do think that it's being suspicious and kind of looking at people as and like strangers and fearing them and being isolationist it's corrosive it's really bad for the human spirit to live like that and you know and and we see it on a daily basis you know with the news that we hear um terrible things happening and i think actually the nordic model is one that shows that you can 
you know, you can step back and actually look after yourself and look after people around you and the community and your friends and, you know, have some sense of solidarity with other human beings. Mm. And guess what? It works. Yeah. You know, everyone's generally more content. <laughs> and the amazing thing is it's, it almost feels like common sense. Mm-hmm. None of the ideas are radical. Yeah. None of them are alien to any of us. We can all understand why they're good, but somehow we don't seem to be able to keep these things in our daily lives. Yeah. And I do think that's partly the the country and the the world that we live in these days. Is it's hard to be like that, yeah. Um, because it is harder to have the lives that you know our parents maybe used to have. Exactly. Um, and I think I wish we could get back to that ideal. And I think when I was flicking through the the book earlier, um, I just kept thinking, this just feels like the life I want to live. But it also feels like a life that I could have had 50 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe 60 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think trying to attain a part of that, even if it's just a small thing that you maybe do once a day or mm-hmm. take some time, would be a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's the same thing with the whole trend of mindfulness a couple of years ago, is that actually those little moments are really important. And as you think, uh, with um, the way we are these days being quite corrosive, I think these little taking time for yourself and for others and trying to be convivial can actually really restore how you feel about lots of other people definitely i think that's the thing and it's you have to you have to start somewhere you know we're we're a planet of six billion people and if you decide that you want to live in splendid isolation then good luck to you is all i can say because (laughs) i think actually we have to live amongst a lot of people and especially in a big city and we've, we've got to develop strategies to make it work that's the thing and i think the problem is that again i do think it comes back to the there's a relentless pressure within the media to make people feel bad about themselves about every aspect of their lives because it's it's about selling things um and i I realize this as someone who has published a book on a subject so i the irony of trying to (laughs) sell you a book on the subject but um i I think again, it's it's about it goes back to that idea of empowerment, and I, I know that seems like a grandiose word, or as President-elect Trump would say, braggadocious. Um, <laughs> huge, but, <laughs> huge. Um, but it it goes back to this um, this idea of empowerment. You know that we step back and we make decisions that will not only make ourselves happier and more content, but will will develop a certain resilience against the challenges that mm. we face in life, and we all face challenges, whether it's in our jobs for our families, um, you know, this, this getting on the housing ladder, you know, there's all kinds of things that modern age throws up for us. And, yeah. and I'm not whining about that. I'm not complaining. That's just the way life is. And, you know, it was much harder for our ancestors um, in many ways. So we are, we're incredibly lucky. We're very fortunate to have all the technology at our disposal yeah. to make our lives easier. Um, but I think in, somewhere along the line, something's been lost. And I think that's there's a sort of sense of drifting and alienation that people feel. They feel like they need to connect in some way with other people. Mm. And, and I, Higgit does seem to tap into that. You know, I think people just feel like they need to restore themselves. They need to be kinder to themselves. They need to look after themselves. And they don't want to be told to go on some crazy diet yeah. or to be told to look a certain way. You know, I think especially mm. as a woman, I, I'm, you know, I really shun a lot of media um, that target women for yeah. making themselves feel bad about their bodies or making, you know, feeling like you have to spend tons of money on a handbag to be a worthwhile <laughs> yeah. human being and all this nonsense. It's like, it's actually really important to step back and, and ask yourself, what kind of a life do I want to live? Yeah, and what fulfills me and what, and okay, if you're 
you know, if you're a dieting, um, spinning, sort of, you know, crazed <laughs> shopaholic who loves every lifestyle fad and dieting fad going, then good luck to you. I mean, it's fine. It's, you know, that's your choice. You can live like that and maybe it makes you happy. But yeah. it just seems in general from conversations I've had in recent years that there's a real risk of alienation. I think people just feel Definitely. like they're, they're disaffected with a lot of the aspects of modern life. And, you know, Scandinavia offers an alternative. I definitely think um, the pressure to conform to a certain way of life is something that seems to become stronger and stronger. I think whether it's um, you know in the kind of almost more traditional way that people understand that women have that pressure to you know trying to live up to people's Instagram accounts or you know it seems to be an ever pervading pressure throughout all of media. You know, yeah. don't eat this, do eat this. You must be doing this exercise. You must be doing this. Yeah. And I'm, in some ways, whilst I'm surprised at how quickly the concept uh, of hugger has become so popular, it doesn't surprise me because it is such a nice concept. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you slightly misunderstand it, that misunderstanding is still a really nice concept. Yeah. And I think the more you delve into it, the more it feels like actually this is a really nice way of living your life. Um, so I, I mean, I, Fika has become kind of part of my life a little bit in the last few years. <laughs> It's a concept that I think I was doing already before I knew what it was. Yeah, you were. <laughs> um, I mean, cake is my life, so. Um, and I, I, I would like to see if I can kind of incorporate elements or parts of Hugger in my life because I think I'm aware of the pressure that I'm under mm -hmm. living in a city, you know, uh, like London and having a job like I do. There's a lot of pressure and trying mm. to actually take time to enjoy life and life with other people I think is a really nice thing to do definitely yeah. um, living, you've lived in London for all in the UK for about half of your life now so is there anything you actually miss food wise from Norway um, there's lots of things I mean I, it's it's much better now in terms of access to ingredients that I can find Scandinavian ingredients sure. in the UK and of course Remember, Britain is a northeastern European country, so well, a northern European country, I suppose technically. Um, so we're on the same similar latitude, yeah. and you get a lot of um, produce in this country that I recognise from when I grew up in Norway. So you know, great dairy, great cheese, mm. um, you know, wonderful seasonal produce that grows in the summer, in the winter, in autumn and spring. And I just, I, I find myself missing really random things from Norway. Um, we used to bring back suitcases of really strange things. Um, but, you know, like the ABBA anchovies is a really good example. That sounds bonkers, but I love these little anchovies. They're, um, they're brined in, in a kind of spiced solution. So they're quite different from the Southern European sure. anchovies. And you use them in lots of ways in, in Scandinavian cooking. But really for me, it's, it's uh, I think it's probably one of those kind of Proustian moments that... Um, the first solid food I ever ate as a baby, as an infant, was um, a slice of buttered toast with ABBA anchovy smeared on it and dunked into a boiled egg. And my dad fed me this. So I have particularly strong memories sure. associated with that. But this, thing, I mean, again, it's a taste of home. You yeah. know, we know this, that, that flavors and our senses can remember um, tastes oh, for, completely. For, for years. You know, yeah. there's, there's something will come back to me that I haven't remembered for over a decade, you know, that will remind me of my childhood in Norway. And I, I think the one thing I really miss is um, is the intensity of the berries. And I think you get this in Scotland to some extent because mm -hmm. it's northerly latitude. But on the west coast of Norway, because there's so much daylight during the summer months, a very short summer period, um, you get these very dark, intensely flavored berries. And it's hard to describe to people until yeah. they try it. You know, again, it's like you have to try them and then you understand what I'm talking about. But yeah. 
but it's just the depth of flavor and as someone who loves food you know flavor is everything yeah and um, so I would say that I really miss the berries from my grandparents' farm, you know, that, we, that would grow, grow in the wild and that were cultivated, you know, the wild strawberries. Or, I vaguely you know, remember you talking uh, a couple of years ago about um, supermarket blueberries <laughs> and how in the UK, I mean, we all kind of know this, that supermarket blueberries are kind of the most boring thing in the world. As much as I adore blueberries, they don't really taste of anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've actually taken to buying, um, there is one brand of frozen blueberries, which are frozen wild blueberries. Mm-hmm. And they are tiny. They're these little yeah. tiny blueberries. And the flavor is way more intense. Yeah, they're inky. Yeah, they're really completely inky. Dark and, yeah. and I think if I, if I had those growing up, I think I would definitely miss <laughs> those. Yeah, no, we love our fruit. We're, yeah. I mean, I think, again, because you grow up in a cold climate and you sort of crave the flavors of summer. <laughs> yeah. um, so I still sometimes, you know, I'll get to this time of year, November, December, and I, it's like just as we're going into the, all the joys of yeah. winter cooking, I was like, oh, I really miss, you know, I, yeah. I miss those blueberries. Or, and luckily, I have a father who makes a lot of jam. Um, <laughs> very, good jam. <laughs> yeah, very good jam. Very good jam. Thanks, Dad. Um, and he, uh, and again, it's just family tradition. You know, he grew up with homemade jam, mm-hmm. so he's just kept it going. He's 70 years old, and he, you know, he will spend two weeks making jam on the west coast of Norway every summer because that was, that's what makes him happy. But again, it's that meditative thing. He yeah. makes something that fills him with joy. It's Completely. kind of process-driven. It's not the most exciting cooking, mm. but he, he'll get to January and open up a, a, a jar of of wild blueberry jam and it's like oh you know thank god i spent this time (laughs) making it you know it's so so satisfying so yeah simple things i think everyone everyone who has a diaspora experience Mm. or you know who's been a migrant to another country has probably a similar story to tell that it's usually the flavors of your childhood that you crave um with christmas coming up around the corner um is there anything that any kind of norwegian traditions that you have with your christmas that we can take hold of or have you adopted a kind of very British Christmas? Um, I'd say we definitely have a very Anglo-Scandinavian Christmas in our household. Um, So there's several ways of going about this. One of them is I would explain that in Norway, at least when I was growing up, that it was a season of small celebrations. Mm. So the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, is when we normally have our Christmas dinner. And um, it's kind of like any other dinner. It's a bit like just a Sunday roast. Sure. So it's not, there isn't this huge build up to the 24th of December. <laughs> um, and again, I think it stems from this sort of deep rooted pragmatism of the region. You find this across the Scandinavian region and the Nordic countries that, yes, Christmas is a thing. We, you know, I th- and again, I think it's more of our pagan tradition than a Christian one. Um, it's a midwinter solstice or whatever you want to call it. And um, and people come together and they'll have like a smorgasbord and they'll have some simple food and you do Christmas baking, mm. you know. So yes, we do celebrate it, but it's almost like a whole season of celebrations, yeah. which is much gentler and it's less frenetic. It's less about one day and people do not lose their heads over <laughs> Christmas. I mean, I've had British Christmases where, you know, yeah. my aunt would get up at three in the morning to start preparing the turkey. I mean, the joke is that British Christmases are, you know, about arguments. Yeah. You know, that it's not Christmas without family breaking down. I mean, I'm very lucky that we don't have that. Yeah. But that is the stereotype. And I think that's because people do get very stressed about making the perfect Christmas. Exactly. Um, and from my very limited knowledge of kind of Scandinavian Christmases, I love those little festivals. I'm going to forget the name of it. The... Um, it's the festival where the St. Lucia buns are served. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, with it's, the candles yeah, it's, and the white dress. It's the um, Santa Lucia. Yeah. That's what we oh. call it. Yeah. <laughs> Clues in the name of the buns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but those little things, they yeah. keep, seem to have kind of little traditional moments, but they're really, I don't know, it's kind of, maybe they just fit into my stereotypical idea of what a Scandinavian winter is like, but it feels kind of incredibly warm mm. and... 
uh, well, kind of, I don't use the word cosy again, but it feels like a very cosy season because there's lots of these little occasions and rather than just this massive build up to mm-hmm. that one day and then everyone just kind of dies from overeating. Exactly. And I think that it's, to my mind, it's, it's a very sane approach mm. to not only to Christmas, but to winter in mm. that we, you know, we don't fear winter in the Nordic region <laughs> we actually embrace it. And you have to, because when you live in a cold climate, mm. it, there's no other solution. You mean your trains um, don't stop after one tiny well, bit of snow? Well, that's what infrastructure does for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, it, again, Canada is the same. I think every yeah. cold climate's the same. Definitely. If you go to parts of Russia, it's probably very similar. Um, but it's, you know, the way that we approach winter and Christmas um, is a sort of season of small celebrations and Santa Lucia is a great example of that that mm. sort of and also the advent tradition yeah. you know where you light the candles every every Sunday throughout December um, so you come together again you have a very higgly time you come together over you know, just coffee and I do cake now and love the word higgly it's just it, it's just what it is it's like it's very simple and you know it's not about buying into anything it's not about investing yeah. in you know expensive furniture or you know nice lamps although you know if you have the money go for it I, mean, mm. I wish I did um, so <laughs> Sometimes, but um, but the idea that you know you can come together over really simple um, things like Advent or Santa Lucia or a Christmas dinner or whatever it is, and again, and I think because we've approached winter with such a sane <laughs> philosophy, to my mind, um, it means that January comes around and we don't feel as exhausted yeah. by all the craziness yeah. of Christmas. We we actually don't feel the need to diet or to have a giant January. Or, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just like, no, actually life goes on and, and, and we don't live in this state of guilt. Yeah. And I think that's really important that we don't self-flagellate um, as we yes. approach the festive season. You know, I find it really fascinating at this time of year that there's lots of advertising for you know the latest sparkly christmas number dress you yeah. know or, or you know velvet or whatever it is that's fashionable <laughs> this time. i mean i love a bit of velvet but um but this idea that you know you have to go and party and like you know have to have a perfect christmas and everything has to be perfect and you have to invest lots of money in a perfect christmas and then you get to christmas day and you have a fight with your family so that's, you know, <laughs> that's sad um and then you get to january and you think oh my god i'm in debt yeah. and i'm bloated because i've stuffed myself it's and the same pressure we were talking about earlier exactly the it's... expectation of living up to this ideal of a perfect christmas when actually if we can just enjoy each other's company and enjoy yeah. what the season has to offer, yeah. maybe it's a better situation to be in. Exactly. I mean, we, we never had stressful Christmases, although my mother did one year. Um, she's going to hate me for saying this. But, um, we, Dad still brings the traditional Norwegian Christmas over from the West Coast of Norway, um, which is a source of great hilarity to everyone. It's um, smoked and salted lamb's ribs which you steam over birch wood. I kid you not. Wow. Yeah, it's sort of like real Viking fare. Yeah. And you steam it for about eight hours over birch twigs. And um, and then you make some mashed swede and have some potatoes and drink it, uh, drink Akavit and beer alongside. And that's it. I mean, it like, sounds great. It's so lo-fi. Yeah. Like, it's the easiest thing, the easiest meal to prepare in the world. Yeah. And again, not much different from a kind of maybe a Sunday roast. You know, it's a similar concept. Yeah. And um, one year, my dad managed to pour the lamb fat down the sink and <laughs> clog the sink. And my parents, that was the only time we've had a little scrap at Christmas where my mother was like, I can't believe you. I've been married to you for 40 years and you should know better that you shouldn't pour the lamb fat down the sink. And like, that, so that's the only time we've ever had a Johansson family internal argument. And um, I, I managed to, um, to to rescue it from complete calamity because I poured some boiling water down the sink, which is the logical thing to do. But yeah. my mother was so enraged by my father doing 
doing this. <laughs> she forgot. Um, but yeah, no, we, we, we take a little bit of everything. I still love the traditions of like yeah. mince pies and, you know, I, I do like the Anglo traditions and mulled wine and all the rest. So, you know. <laughs> well, they all sound, that sounds like a very nice Christmas to me anyway. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to our second section, which is our shopping list. So it's very, very straightforward. It is just a very quick fire round. You need to choose between two different items. You can give an explanation if you'd like. You can uh, decide my questions are pointless and <laughs> you can't choose. That's fine. It's only meant to be a little bit of fun. Okay. So the first one is rye bread or sourdough crackers. Because I know you're a massive fan of Peter's Yard. Uh, sourdough oh crackers. Oh my goodness, that is a <laughs> tough one. I love both rye bread and sourdough crackers. I think, truth be told, it would have to be Peter's Yard sourdough yeah. spread um, because they keep forever their store cupboard staple yeah. I mean I always have some in my cupboard and they're perfect for snacks for breakfast for lunch they, you know they're great for canapes great for Christmas because you can <laughs> whip up a canapé yeah. really quickly with those babies um, they, they, and they're delicious they, t- they are a classic example of a kind of naturally nourishing delicious uh, Scandi favorite yeah. you know they, they taste great they look great um, they've got a great crunch to them really crispy and what more, more can you want? <laughs> this one might be a little bit harder. Um, Norway or the UK? Oh, yikes. Okay. <laughs> you can also not answer if that's it's a, too that's difficult. A, that's, a lo- that's a loser. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to. I might have to pass on that because I love both. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Cardamom or cinnamon? Uh, probably cardamom, actually. I would have, there was a time I would have said cinnamon, but as I get older and wiser, yeah. um, cardamom is a more interesting, mature spice, I think. I would completely agree. I think as I've got older, I've definitely... I used to love cinnamon. It's that yeah. one note really hit you in the face flavour. But cardamom just holds my interest a lot more it's these much days. much more complex, isn't it? Yeah. Um, scrambled or poached egg? Oh, scrambled all okay. the way with lots of butter. Lots of butter. Yeah, because I think poached eggs you can screw up much more easily than yeah, scrambled. completely. Whereas with scrambled eggs, as long as you keep the heat really low and you've got lots of butter... Yeah, I did, I did quite like how much in the, in, in the book... The mention of the love of butter is quite prevalent. It's it's snuck in there quite a few times. I do like butter. You go, There's nothing wrong with that. I'm completely with you. Uh, blueberries or raspberries? Uh, again, I love both. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a, a jam in Norway called, or in Scandinavia called Queen Maud's Jam, which is it's um, a mix, right? It's a mix of blueberries and raspberries because they're so perfectly mm. entwined and yeah. married. Um, no, I think if I had to choose between the two, um, it would have to be raspberries. Okay. Just because they have more intense flavor. Sure. And unless I'm in a wild blueberry patch, then I think, ooh, wild blueberries, they're amazing. <laughs> and they're not very easy to find wild blueberry no, patches in the UK. That's true. <laughs> uh, cooking or baking? Oh, uh, I would have said baking once, but I think actually cooking now. Oh. I'm more of a savory girl. And I think having written a book on baking, yeah. I was slightly traumatized <laughs> by how much butter I consumed. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I sometimes when I see my, um, if I'm working on a big project and I see my ordering and 25 packs of butter arrive, it's... It's slightly scary. I mean, that yeah. is meant to be for a lot of recipes, I mean, that's, but still, yeah, exactly. yeah. It's, uh, it's daunting. Um, yeah. And the final one, pasta or rice? Huh. I love both. <laughs> I'm just really greedy. I like everything. Um, I think push come to shove, I would say pasta. Yeah. I love a good spaghetti carbonara or yeah. bolognese or linguine vongole or... There are a number of pasta dishes <laughs> yeah. I choose. Yeah. Pasta is one of those uh, fallbacks that I always have in the house. Yeah. Um, you never without a meal if you've got pasta and butter and um, pepper. Exactly. You, know, you can make some delicious things. Yeah. Um, so our final section is uh, the recycling bin. <laughs> so this is your opportunity to rant against an ingredient or a trend that you wish would disappear in food. And then it's up to me, Room 101 style, uh. whether that will go into the proverbial recycling bin and we get rid of it forever. Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's a challenge. Um, 
I, I don't think I would pick an ingredient because I'm actually really struggling to think of an ingredient that I want to ban because I'm again I'm very greedy I like everything um, <laughs> I'm not wild about certain kinds of awful like stripe uh, not stripe tripe rather <laughs> um, but I feel very strongly about this clean eating trend which I imagine um, see I'm really playing to my audience here because you I, really are. I think I, I think I have a fairly good idea of where Ed stands on this <laughs> <laughs> I literally have a line here that says um, I wrote this down earlier that without this ending up as a podcast where I basically just bash clean eating every episode um, but you do actually say some oh ooh. The roof is falling in, <laughs> now we're talking about clean eating. They're, the they're here to get us. In. Yeah. Um, no, I wrote something down about the book. Um, you uh, wrote something in the uh, dessert section. Well, I think it was in one of the rule sections, maybe. And it was about the fact that if you are considering making dessert with sweet potato, chia seeds, or anything that could be considered as clean eating, you've misunderstood what hugger is. And it's kind of true. Uh, you know, yeah. Baking shouldn't be clean you know no. and food isn't clean or dirty exactly i find it a very um off-putting and also pointless yeah. categorization i agree i mean i find I, someone who actually has an interest in health generally and I, I studied nutrition a lot as a teenager i found it really fascinating and i think it's worrying that uh people don't have a basic grasp of human mm. nutrition um you know you, you try to ex- explain histology and the way that enzymes work and what proteins are made of and mm. people look at you like what <laughs> Um, so I find it really troubling that actually on a very basic level, people don't understand <clears throat> nutrition. And I think, again, it's about life skills. It's about understanding yeah. a few things, having a little bit of knowledge and being able to challenge a lot of these crazy fads and trends like clean eating. Yeah. And I know it's, it seems to have um, it's taken a bit of a beating in recent months. I think there's more and more people questioning the tenets of this idea of, mm. of clean eating and cutting out entire food groups and you know, cleaning up your diet and using all this very dangerous language, I think, that yeah. is, um, again, sort of quasi-religious language that I find very disturbing. Um, because food is, by its very nature, messy. Human beings are messy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the worst thing, actually, what I find more offensive is that a lot of the ingredients <clears throat> under the rubric of clean eating, you know, that have become kind of Instagram modern classics, like <laughs> avocado on rye bread, <laughs> sweet potatoes, um, cacao, what else? I'm trying to think. Matcha lattes or matcha green tea. Um, these are actually all ingredients I really enjoy. Yeah, completely. Eating. They're and delicious things. They're really delicious. But you have to, again, it's about the skill of being able to know how to use an ingredient. Yeah. That's the mark of a good cook. And I'm not a perfect cook by any stretch of the imagination. But I do understand how ingredients should be used. And I treat them with reverence and respect. And mm. I think that's really important. And the problem is, is that the what I would say the um, leading lights of the clean eating generation do not understand how to cook. No. And I'm sorry, they just don't. No. You look at the combination of ingredients and it's just, it, it, what it is, it's about maximizing the nutrients in a dish. So throwing arbitrarily together a sweet potato, date, and <laughs> avocado and some chia seeds in the same dish. Which, and then <laughs> throwing in some disgusting. acai berries. I mean, it's just like, oh my God, what is going on with people? But this this notion that you can just throw ingredients together because they're healthy is completely ludicrous. Mm. You have to understand taste and texture and balancing tastes and texture and how to prepare ingredients, how to, you know, how to cook them. You know, I love a sweet potato, but I would never shove them into a brownie, you know, just eat a regular brownie with some good ingredients and stop being a martyr. (laughs) I completely agree. I find, um, clean eating to me has always, uh, going back to the pressure we talked about earlier 
it, it's never felt like it's coming from a genuine place where people are actually trying to make people healthier. Yeah. It, it's always come from this, look at me, you want to be like me. And it's it, to me, it feels quite narcissistic. Yeah. It, it's not coming from a place of joy or a place where you're eating food because you really want to enjoy it. Mm. It feels like, I want to be like this person. Yeah. And it, it has felt very dangerous to me because I think it's playing into the ideas of... Um, perfection mm-hmm. and trying to live up to a standard that's not attainable yeah. um, and I also think because people who are often um, associated with clean eating don't have an understanding of basic food the food isn't nutritious uh, in the right way or it's just not good yeah. and it leads to bad diets um, misunderstanding of what health is yeah. and I've been one of those people that has long thought it's quite dangerous definitely so unsurprisingly <laughs> we're definitely going to put it into the recycling bin because the sooner it disappears the better and i do think it is going away i think it's you know one more year yeah. and then we'll never hear from it again hopefully well, there'll be another unfortunately there'll be another dieting trend but i, I like to think people are wising up a little bit so. to all this nonsense <laughs> i hope so uh, well thank you again for um letting me come around to your house <laughs> very welcome and the book is out now it's called how to hugger Hey. Yeah, that's not again. Still not said right. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a year, I might say it right. Um, and it is a really beautiful book, and the recipes are really delicious. Oh, um, there's you, some really nice uh, baking in there, um, lots of delicious looking sandwiches, and um, kind of the gamut of Nordic cooking. And some so. cocktails as well. Yes, actually, some of the cocktails have really <laughs> grabbed my attention. We're doing this in the early evening, and um, yeah, there was a couple bookmarked. Um, so nice I, I will be, uh, I'll be testing those out when well, I get we, home. We do like a tipple. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It makes life a little bit more interesting. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ed.